Welcome to At the Crossroads Church weekly podcast. Our hope is that you will grow in your walk with God and be blessed and encouraged in your daily lives as you listen. You can visit us at our website at atthecrossroads.ca. Awesome. How are you guys doing this morning? Awesome. We're awake and we got an extra hour of sleep. Isn't that great? Awesome. We had a lot of people in our first service because, uh, because of that. So, so everyone's like, what are we going to do? We're up early. So why don't we stand and pray this morning? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word today, God. We thank you that has the power to change us and challenge us and transform us. Father, we ask, Lord, that you would receive glory today. And Father, I ask that you'd speak to our hearts. Let us be changed in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 So I started a, a, a two-week series. And uh, it, could go for, it, would, it could go for two months. There's so much to be said about the end times. Last week we talked about wars and rumors of wars. And uh, this week we're talking about the time of his return. And so one of the things that I think is important is that we look at the three different perspectives within the body of Christ, or three different theologies. There's the pre-tribulation rapture, there's the mid-tribulation rapture, and there's the post-tribulation rapture. It's important that we understand all three because uh, in North America, we've basically heard the pre-tribulation rapture. We're going to be escaped, taken out of tribulation. The problem with that is that many times, if we only understand that, what happens if Jesus doesn't come back till the end? Then we're not ready and prepared to endure because we've been expected to be delivered from tribulation. So it's important we understand all three uh, doctrines. I'm just going to touch on them this morning. The main thing that we need to understand is that the time of his coming to gather the church is not an essential doctrine. It's not essential. Uh, We can discuss it. We can debate it. We can disagree and still remain in unity. Amen. Because the main thing is that the reality is the Lord is coming for his church. And the Bible says uh, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, it says, but the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So if heaven doesn't know for sure, I'm not going to argue with you about it. Exactly. That makes sense? But what we can do is look at Scripture and kind of get a, a picture or a timeline from Scripture when we feel the Lord is coming. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 and 52 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. Okay? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed. And so we understand Paul says it is a, what's the word? Mystery. That means even Paul the Apostle didn't fully grasp everything that was happening. There's some mystery about the rapture. And uh, that's why we have so much uh, debate and we have different camps. We have five different theories on the end times because... It's a bit of a mystery. I think God wants it to be a bit of a mystery because that way we can learn to to stand in unity and agree to disagree sometimes. Does that make sense? And so the word caught up, when we look at the word rapture, the word rapture is not actually in the Bible, not even once. But the word rapture is taken from the Latin word rapio, right? I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, which is two words for caught up in in the Greek. Okay, to to be caught up is, is the Greek word Harpazo, which means to seize, to catch away, to pluck, or to take up by force. Now, this word caught up, or hapazo, is only used four times in the entire Bible. Say four times. times. That's it. 
Only, only twice is it used to speak about end time events. First, Thessalonians 4.17 is where we see the word for the first time. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And so that's Amen. the one end time caught up in reference to the church. The other verse is Revelations 12, verse 5. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's it. That's all she wrote. That's the only two places when we see this concept of the rapture and the church. Two verses. Now, it's implied and it's explained through different ways, but we only see that word twice. One of the reasons why I have so many different views on the end times is because the nature of prophetic books, when you read the book of Daniel and Zechariah and Revelations, you're reading those books, there's lots of types and shadows which can be interpreted differently, right? And we need to ask some questions when we're reading these prophetic books. First thing we need to ask, we ask, ask ourselves, what is happening in the natural realm? Number two, what is happening in the spiritual realm? What is symbolic and what is actual? And so you have, to, you have to weed through all that and understand it. And so those who are much smarter than you and I, who have spent years and years studying the Greek and Hebrew, are still arguing a little bit about some of these meanings. But we have to understand the best way to study the book of Revelations is first to go to the scriptures that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus gives us a clear passage, and then we're going to see it in a few other scriptures in the New Testament. But... Looking at this, okay, um, if we don't understand what Paul and Jesus says about the end times and we dig right into the poetic books or the prophetic books, we can get easily confused. But if we really understand what Paul and Jesus say about the end times, it clarifies everything that is types and shadows. Does that make sense? Okay. So, so important. So the pre-tribulation rapture, uh, and again, I just, I just want to give you the th a quick view of the three. So the first one is the pre-tribulation rapture. It was introduced as a doctrine in 1830. Um, it's, it's about the second coming of Christ as being a two-part event. Prior to 1830, the second coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord was a one-time event. We're going to show a little video on that. Okay, the rapture of the church and the return of Jesus are two separate events. Okay, the church is raptured before the Antichrist's arrival on the scene. The church attends the wedding supper of the Lamb in heaven and then returns with Christ after seven years of great tribulation on the earth. The Lord will defeat the Antichrist and the nations surrounding Israel in the battle to end all battles and we'll be with him. And then we will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And so that summarizes the pre-tribulation rapture. Everyone's familiar with that. Maybe you're not, but now you're hearing it. Okay. So we, when we read the book of Matthew, we're going to just break it up quickly. Matthew chapter 24. In verse 3 and 8... Jesus says, take heed that no one deceives you. Take heed that no one deceives you. He says, many are going to come in my name, and they're going to say I'm the Christ, right? Don't follow them. And we talked about this last week, so I won't go over it again. Then he says, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. He says, nation will rise against nation. Famine, pestilence, and earthquakes are going to happen. How many know we've seen a lot of that? 
right? They will deliver you up. They will persecute you. They will kill you. All nations will hate you for my name's sake. Many will be offended, betray one another, will hate one another. For many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. That word love is the agape love of God. But he who endures, say endures, to the end will be saved. And this gospel will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. Then the end will come. Now, in the pre-tribulation rapture, this is where there's this thought of the Lord is going to come and return and pull his body out. We're going to, in a twinkling of an eye, we're going to go to be with the Lord. And then in verse 15 to 26, Jesus talks about the great tribulation. Okay? And the great tribulation, Jesus says, okay, when you see the Antichrist sitting in the temple, okay, let those in Judea flee. So he's basically saying during the, the beginning of the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist is going to come and take a seat in the temple in Jerusalem. And then he says, those in Judea, you need to flee. Get, get off the housetop. Don't come back for stuff. Just get out of there. Because persecution during the Great Tribulation will be worse in certain areas. Obviously, the temple is close to Judea. Judea is actually now the West Bank. So he, Jesus is saying, you know, get out of the area. Okay, so persecution is going to be around the world, but it's going to be specifically bad in the West Bank. Okay? Then we see in verse 27 and 31, the coming of the Lord is described as lightning that flashes from the east to the west. The tribes of the earth will mourn. He will send his angels with a great sound and of a trumpet, and he will gather his elect from all the corners of the earth. And it's going to happen on the same day. So... What I would like to do, this whole passage, I think, is very systematic. Jesus says, this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen. And then certain teachers have come in and thrown a rapture in there, but we don't see it in Scripture. And what I'd like to do is just show you a quick video um, from the Middle East, Messianic Jewish believers and how they feel about the end times. Now, this is a perspective pre-1830 of what the end of the age and the coming of the Lord will look like. So it's about a 20-minute video. We're going to watch it, and then we're going to summarize. And how many enjoyed the worship this morning? Amen. Should we do another song at the end? Yes. Yeah, we'll do another song. we got a really good song for you guys. Um, so we're going to watch this video and take it away. Heights in northern Israel today... Greetings from our studio here in the Golan Heights in northern Israel. Today we are on day six of the Maranatha fast and day six of our Maranatha global Bible study studying the end of the age and the return of the Lord. In the FAI app, all the sessions for every day are available for free. You can download the app and we go very deep word by word, sentence by sentence through some of the most significant and important eschatological passages in the Bible. You can go to the app, download it, and we go into great detail. Today what I wanted to do is give a bonus session. I'm going to do a condensed short session today addressing the issue of the pre-tribulation rapture. Let's just jump right into it. Reason number one that we don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture Meaning, we believe that Jesus comes after the tribulation of those days. That's a verbatim quote from Matthew 24. After the tribulation, the second coming drama unfolds. There's not a secret rapture. 
at the beginning of the tribulation. That's what the terminology means if, if this is a new concept for you. Now, that's a significant different worldview and a different gospel message to either prepare for escape or prepare for endurance. So let's look at reason number one. Reason number one we don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture is because it's not found in the Bible. That's the most important point. Now, you can infer it in many, many passages in the Bible. You can infer it in types and shadows and metaphors and use this as an example. Noah was an example. He got on the ark and he escaped the judgment. Enoch was exempt from the days of Noah. The Lord took him up. There's lots of these metaphors that are used to justify the teaching. But the bottom line is this. There's not a single verse in the Bible that affirms a pre-tribulation escape before the days of trouble. There isn't one. Now, here's the encouraging thing. There's only four verses in the whole Bible that talk explicitly about the rapture. I'm going to mention them briefly, and you can go read them on your own. The first one is Matthew 24, 29 through 31. Jesus says this, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, those specific days mentioned from verse 15 to 31, the tribulation of those days, after that, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give light, the stars will fall, then you will see the coming of the Son of Man, and he will gather the elect. He will gather his beloved to himself. That's the simple narrative as Jesus taught it. He didn't say that before the tribulation of those days, the redeemed will be pulled out and will escape the tribulation of those days. In fact, once we study what happens in Matthew 24, we see the involvement and engagement and participation of the church all over that message as Jesus is clearly explaining the role of the body of Christ as these pressures are bearing down on the earth. The second passage is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul says this, Hey Thessalonians, you have no need that I should write to you because I already told you this when I was with you. The day of the Lord which is the coming of our Lord and our being gathered together with him to him, meaning he puts those as one event, the coming of our Lord and our being gathered together to him. Those days, that day, that specific day, that singular awesome day, the day of the Lord, that day will not come until the great falling away happens first and the man of sin is revealed first. So what Paul is saying is this, in order for the day of the Lord, which by the way, he calls the day of the Lord, the coming of our Lord and our being gathered together. He mentions three terms, day of the Lord, coming of our Lord, gathering to our Lord. He says that day, it's one day, beloved. It's not two days. It's not one that happens over a span of multiple years. It's one event and it's one day. That's a compelling point. The second point is he says it happens after the great falling away, and the man of sin, who is the Antichrist. The, the man of sin is this colossal figure in biblical eschatology who will be a massive reason for this great falling away and a lot of the great turmoil that's going to happen in the generation of the Lord's return. Paul's writing to a church and saying, guys, you need to prepare that the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord is not going to happen until after that. So in other words, be prepared to endure that, which is also then not surprising why in chapter one of the same book in Second Thessalonians, he's encouraging the saints in Thessalonica. He says, guys, I know you're going through a lot of pain and affliction right now, but here's the deal. Your affliction is going to lift. He's going to bring relief to you on the day he comes in flaming fire 
in flaming fire, not in a secret rapture before the trouble, when he comes in flaming fire to do what? To deal out, quote, retribution among the nations. So he says that our day of relief will come on the day when he comes in flaming fire. That's very, very compelling. The third text out of the four is in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50, 51, 52. He's explaining the resurrection of our bodies at the end of the age when the Lord returns. And he says this, we are going to be swallowed up in immortality, incorruptible, corruptible flesh will be swallowed up in incorruptible glory when he comes. And he says this, we will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, at the last trumpet. Now, if you've studied trumpets in biblical eschatology, you know that there's a series of trumpets at the end of the age in this end of the age scenario. And Paul says this, you're going to get a resurrected body at the end of the trumpets, the last trumpet. So you go, well, where's the last trumpet? When's the last trumpet sound? You know, you don't really need to know when it sounds because you know it's the last one. There won't be another one. Now, when we compare that to passages like 1 Thessalonians 4 and Matthew 24, we realize that Paul and Jesus also speak about a great trumpet, a last trumpet, a seventh trumpet. So we know this. It happens after the tribulation, Matthew 24, after the great falling away and the Antichrist is revealed, 2 Thessalonians. And we know that it happens after all the other trumpets at the final trumpet. That sounds pretty end, doesn't it? And then our last text, which is a very important one, is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Paul's addressing the community in Thessalonica again, which is, he wrote this before 2 Thessalonians, why it's called 1 Thessalonians. And he says this, guys, listen, if those who have died and are buried in the ground right now, he says this, on the day when the Lord comes, we're going to hear a loud trumpet blast. Uh, that's the same trumpet, right? He said in 1 Corinthians 15, the last trumpet. Now he says, you're going to hear a great trumpet blast. And he says this, the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive at the coming of the Lord will meet them. When the Lord gathers both the dead in Christ and the alive in Christ who are alive in the generation of the Lord's return. So again, he puts the gathering of the saints at the end of everything else. Not only at the end, he puts it on the backside of the dead. Guys, the resurrection of the dead is a pretty final event, right? He says this, the ones in the ground are going to get resurrected bodies first, and we who are alive will get resurrected bodies in the process of that great drama unfolding. So after the tribulation, after the falling away, after the man of sin, after all the other trumpets, at the last trumpet, and at that last trumpet, after the dead in Christ rise first. Those are the only four passages in the whole Bible that talk explicitly about the rapture. Now, there are other ones that talk about things connected to the gathering of the saints, but none of them that, that teach openly about the gathering of the saints. There isn't any other passage. So that's encouraging because you don't have to study 100 passages. You only have to study four. And those four are very clear and very explicit. It happens at the end. So we can, can conclude this. The pre-tribulation rapture is not in the Bible. 
you can imply it, you can infer it, you can project it and convey it onto texts, but you're not going to find it in any texts. The second reason we don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture is because it's not taught in church history. The first time that anyone mentioned it for 2,000 years of church history was in the 1830s. In 1850, John Darby said that he came up with this 30 years ago which would be around 1827. So there's two views on where this came from. John Darby claims it was his. There's another woman named Margaret MacDonald from Glasgow, Scotland. Now, she had a dream, an encounter with the Lord, and wrote the dream down and shared it with her community. That got spread around, and many people started hearing it. Now, leaders at the time in Ireland and Scotland and in England heard the teaching and said, that's, that's, not, that's not biblical. Because she was implying, not even really arguing, she was just saying, this is what happened in my dream, was that the people of God were exempt. They escaped the final trouble. And it grew from there. It was largely condemned by leaders in the body at that time, but some latched on to it. John Darby and C.I. Schofield latched on to it. Now, these guys would go on to be very influential figures in modern theology. From there, the Schofield Study Bible would get written, which was the most popular study Bible or Bible of that generation and even up until almost our generation. And that is how the teaching spread like wildfire. Another way that it spread was through a novel, a fictional novel series called the Left Behind series. Now, this series was sold millions of copies. There was films made about it. It went around the world. But the reality is this. It may be in films. It may be in pop culture. It may be in popular books in our generation. But before 1830, there's not a single example of anyone teaching it, preaching it, or even arguing or engaging with it. Now, an interesting thing happened a number of years ago. Some of the advocates of the pre-tribulation rapture theory wrote a book in defense of the pre-tribulation rapture because many people are starting to walk away from it, which is a good thing. So they wrote this book to encourage people not to walk away from it. And in the appendix, they wrote a 15-page appendix where they tried to argue why it was littered throughout church history and many people believed it. And so when I heard about this, I got excited. I thought, well, maybe there's something I'm not aware of because I've scoured church history and I can't find anyone who ever talked about it. So I opened it up and I saw, oh, it's 15 pages. There's got to be some good evidence in here. It's 15 pages of the authors quoting other pre-tribulation authors saying that it is in church history without a single example of it being in church history. And this is the overwhelming problem with this issue. It's not in church history. All throughout the centuries, people anticipated that Jesus would return and gather us on the same day. You're not going to find people talking about Jesus coming and people disappearing in their clothes falling onto the ground and then them sitting in heaven for three and a half years while the earth gets bombarded by judgments. It's a fantasy. It is as left behind states in the way that it's archived, it is fiction. It is not biblical. It is not in church history. That's a very important point. Not because church history is the most authoritative thing the Bible is, but it is quite important to recognize that it's a novel idea, meaning someone discovered it, concocted it, created it, and injected it into the bloodstream of the global body of Christ. 
This is why I would argue it's actually a false teaching that it's actually probably most likely rooted in demonic opposition to the Lord's intentions of preparing the global church for the trouble that comes before the day of the Lord. Because if you can get the global body to be waiting for escape, not preparing for endurance, then you can set the global body up for confusion, for disillusionment, and from offense. That is a massive win for devils and the power of the air. And that's why I believe it's such a destructive teaching and why it's been only injected into the bloodstream of the global body in the last two centuries. Now, the third reason why we don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture is also a very important one. You won't find it taught outside the Western church. Now, you may find pockets of it here and there of someone in a connected to a frontier area of the earth, near unreached people groups, who believes it. But if you ask them, where did you get this from? They will say, I got it from this teaching, from this book, from this Bible school, from this TV teaching televangelist. But they're not going to say, I got it reading my Bible at home. No one ever discovers the pre-tribulation rapture teaching sitting at home alone. You have to be taught this message, which is a very important point. No one No one just stumbles into a pre-tribulation conviction unless you're taught the teaching first. And here's why I think this is significant. Much of the church today is already living in tribulation. They're not living in the great tribulation that will precede the Lord's return, but they're living in tribulation. And we in the West are not. We're about to be, but we're not right now. And that's why believers in Iran and Syria and difficult places around the Middle East, the Muslim world, the Buddhist world, the Hindu world, who are dealing with persecution, who are dealing with incredible challenges, they're not preparing for escape from trouble because they live in trouble all day long. It's the air that they breathe. And so they are prepared for future tribulation because they're living in present tribulation, which is a very important reality for us to grapple with is this. The pre-tribulation rapture is conducive to Western culture. It's not conducive to a culture that's enduring persecution. I'm going to read a quote from you, a quote to you from someone that I have great respect for. And if you know her name, you have great respect for her too. Her name is Corrie Ten Boom. Corrie Ten Boom, you may know this name from what they did for the Jewish people, her and her family did for the Jewish people during the Holocaust. Amazing family, amazing woman. This is what she wrote in 1974. She survives the Holocaust and she writes this in 1974. Hear these words from a woman who endured more than you and I can possibly imagine. I think she has a right to speak. She says this, There are some among us teaching that there will be no tribulation, that the Christians will be able to escape all this. These are the false teachers that Jesus was warning us to expect in the latter days. Most of them have little knowledge of what is already going on across the world. I have been in countries where the saints are already suffering terrible persecution. In China, the Christians were told by American Bible teachers Quote, don't worry, before the tribulation comes, you will be raptured. Then came a terrible persecution. Millions of Christians were tortured to death. Later, I heard a bishop from China say sadly, quote, we have failed. 
We should have made the people strong for persecution rather than telling them Jesus would come first. Tell the people how to be strong in times of persecution, how to stand when the tribulation comes, to stand and to not faint. Corey Ten Boom, 1974. The fourth and final reason that dovetails well with this, that we don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, is because the message of escape is not found in any of Jesus' preparatory warnings about the generation that will live through the dynamics that lead to the Lord's return. Jesus' emphasis when he was proclaiming preparation was to prepare for endurance and engagement, not escape and exemption. I'm going to say that again because this is very important. If you scour the red letters of Jesus that speak about the end of the age, his message revolves around engagement on the ground amidst the trouble. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to all nations, then the end will come. The gospel will advance. The gospel will go forth. But what if the people who have the gospel are removed? Who will be the bearers of the message? Jesus told us to prepare for engagement, and he told us to prepare for endurance. When we look at the passages in the New Testament, the, the Lord and the, the apostles emphasized this issue of unprecedented martyrdom in the generation of the Lord's return, which means this, we need to prepare for the shedding of blood in mass, that we are going to be like our Lord, following in his footsteps, laying our lives down for his name's sake. This is why in Matthew 24, Jesus would say this, In those days, you will be hated by all nations for my namesake, and they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death for my namesake. Jesus did not proclaim exemption from tribulation ever. He did not proclaim escape from tribulation ever. In fact, he said this before he left, In this world, you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. Take heart, fear not. Be a good soldier, Paul would say. Prepare for the days of trouble ahead. Don't prepare to be exempt and to have privileged status while your neighbor has to endure the pressures that are to befall the earth before the Lord returns. And I'll end with this, a very important passage. In Revelation chapter 7, the Apostle John is in this encounter with the Lord. He's in He's looking around and he sees multitudes of people worshiping God in Revelation 7 from every tribe, every tongue, multitudes, multitudes in all languages adoring God. And an angel says, who are these? And John says, I don't know. Who are they? And he says this, these are those who have come up out of the great tribulation or in the original language, those who have come up out of the tribulation, the great one. Which means this, if the church is somehow raptured before the great tribulation, the church is not invited to that party. Those, that great mixed multitude from among the nations, will worship him having come up out of the tribulation, having washed their robes white in the blood of the lamb. The white robes are given to martyrs. And this is a very appropriate point to end and to say amen on. 
the Lord is preparing the global body of Christ to give a final martyr witness before his return. And without that martyr witness, the gospel of Christ and him crucified will not be declared and demonstrated the way that God intends it to in the generation that he sends his son to Jerusalem to establish his government and his rule and his reign. Again, if you're interested in studying this subject in greater detail. So the reason why I wanted to share that with you, because this was the common teaching of the end times prior to the 1830s. Okay, now you could argue that you believe in pre-trib and you can bring scriptures and we can have a discussion and debate, but this is the, the, the understanding before the 1800s. Now, they also taught, we'll bring up our, la- our last slide on Goshen, that we were as a people during this time of tribulation would be in, in Goshen. So the whole concept of Goshen is it's a place of protection, okay? Goshen means to draw near. Goshen stands for a place of plenty and comfort. The name Goshen means a place of plenty and comfort. In addition, it symbolizes security, fertility, and prosperity. And so we understand that when, when, God went, or when, when Moses went into Egypt, God brought all these plagues on the Egyptians who would not let God's people go. You guys know the stories there. But God protected his people in Goshen. In Goshen was a place where they, they were in safety. The curses were coming upon the, 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 the wicked, but they were safe. And when, when you start to study the, the, the revelations, you'll see that the plagues that, that God is sending, they're actually in line, with, it's, it, it, they're in line with what Moses brought on the Egyptians. They're very similar, the plagues. And so I just wanted to read a couple, and we're going to summarize in just a few minutes here. There was a plague of hail and fire. In Revelation chapter 11, 19, it says the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings and earthquakes and great hail. And we see in Revelation chapter 16, verse 20 and 21, then every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail since that plague was exceedingly great. This is talking about during the time of the Great Tribulation. Now we go to Exodus chapter 9. This is when Moses went into Egypt. In verse 23, it says, Moses stretched out his rod towards heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire upon the ground. And the Lord rained hail from the land of Egypt, so there was hail and fire mingled with hail. So very heavy was it that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt, since it was a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both men and beasts, and hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Now look at this next verse. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. And so the early church, when we taught on tribulations and end times, we were to endure it, but that God would put a seal or a mark on the believers so that the plagues would not come near us. But that he would need us in the end time to bring the gospel message to all the world. And yes, there will be those who are martyrs, but there's also going to be those who are protected in that time. Another plague we see in Revelations is darkness on the land. We see here, and we we have to understand the Egyptians worship the sun god, so... Every plague was God coming against one of their deities, okay? And that's a whole other message. But in Revelation chapter 8, verse 12, it says, and this is the fourth trumpet, the heavens were struck 
And the fourth angel sounded, and the third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that the third of them was darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. We see in Revelation chapter 16, verse 10 to 11, this is the fifth bowl, is, is darkness and pain. On the fifth uh, angel poured out of the bowl of his throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed God of heaven because of their pain and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. That's going to happen during the great tribulation. And then we go to Exodus chapter 10, when God is putting the ninth plague of darkness on the Egyptians, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone arise from the place for three days. But the children of Israel had light in their dwelling. We have to be people of Goshen. We have to be people of rest. We have to get close to God. So whether he, if he shows up before the tribulation, I'm all for it. Sure. But if he doesn't, I'm willing to go through it because I know that he is my hiding place. I can be in Goshen. I'm protected by the Lord. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 5 to 15, and this is, uh, we're going to summarize this in just a moment. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up out of the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And, and magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs in the land of Egypt. And the, the whole land was filled with frogs. Now we look in Revelations chapter 16. We see a, a similar plague here. The sixth bowl, when you read about it, the Euphrates dried up. Now, how many know the Euphrates in the last few years has dried up? Yeah. It's gone. It's dried up. It says in Revelation 16 that Euphrates will dry up. The sixth angel poured out of his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the ways of the kings from the east might be prepared to come to war. And I saw three, and here's the, look what it says. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the mouth of the beast, and the mouth of the false prophet. Okay? For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day almighty. And look what he says. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments lest he walk naked and they see his nakedness. So you re during this plague, it's coming to the end, and Jesus gives us a hint. I'm coming. When you see the Antichrist, the beast, moving, and these demon spirits moving out to the nations, I'm going to come for my church. He's telling us right here it's going to happen. Not pre-trib. It's either going to happen middle or at the end. But there's nothing in Scripture to really prove now, there are seven letters to the seven churches in Revelations 2 and 3, chapter 2 and 3. And these are the seven churches. There's the loveless church. There's the persecuted church. There's the compromising church. There's the corrupt church. There's the dead church. And the last church is called the, do you guys know? Faithful church. 
And each church, Jesus comes to make a correction. So you need to change this in what you're doing. And if you change it, this will be your blessing. And then he gives them a blessing. Okay, you read through it. It's really good. Chapter 2 and 3, read through it. But the last church he speaks to is the faithful church. And look what he says in Revelations chapter 3, verse 8 to 11. He says, I know your works. He's talking to the faithful church. I've set before you an open door. Now, theologians have looked at this word open doors. It's either there's an opportunity for evangelism or it's an open door to eternity. One of the two. No one can shut it for you have a little strength. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those in the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and are not. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you. So God's going to be moving on the faithful church in the time of the tribulation. Look at this. Because you've kept my commandments to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world. There's a promise. For those who are faithful, who are tied into Goshen, who are connected in deep relationship with God, God promises that he will keep us from the hour of trial. Now, Revelation chapter 12 says that God is going to take the woman and the child, which symbolizes the church, and move them to a place of safety. So it could be that we're transported supernaturally to an area of the world where there's safety and we're not going to be persecuted. Or it could mean that God will rapture people in the church. Could be. Very interesting, isn't it? My command is... Because you persevered, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which was coming upon the whole world, which is going to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so no one will take your crown. Let's stand together. Father, whether you're sending your son pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, or post-tribulation, we thank you, Father, that we can be ready. We're ready to go. We got our life ready. We can go if you came in a moment. But we're also willing to endure. We're also willing to lay down our life if need be. We're not going to compromise because you're our Lord. You're our conviction. You're our Savior. Help us to stand. Holy Spirit, bring endurance into our spirits that we would be those who are strong. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now, in this video, I really, the reason why I had him summarize it instead of myself, it would take me an hour to get that out. He summarized it in 20 minutes. One thing I would say that I wouldn't agree 100% is I wouldn't call those who teach pre-trib false teachers. I would just bring a correction to that because I taught pre-trib for many years. I did, and I didn't, I didn't see myself as a false teacher. But I now believe that we're going we're gonna to go that the day of the Lord is one day. It's not two. That's what I believe from my conviction, from my scripture. If you disagree, we can have discussion about it. But at the end of the day, we must be ready. Amen? Thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed our message. If you are in the Quinty West area, we would love to have you visit us on Sunday morning at 24 Dundas Street West, Trenton, Ontario. Check out our service times on our website at atthecrossroads.ca.